Hey, Lisa. Hey. Good to see you. Yeah, it's good to see you as well. Yeah. We were uh, a little bit overdue for a new episode of Art of Practice. Um, we took last month off, which is okay because I think we were just completely inundated with um, a whole lot of activities back then, but it's really nice to pick up the thread with you. Yeah, it's good. It's good. And we, we get to have Namali here today. So one of my absolute favorite people in the galaxy. Woohoo! No, Molly. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm good. It's nice to be with you both. Thank oh, you. Oh, it's Thank so awesome to have you. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I was saying to you um, in chat before the show, I've been seeing a lot more of you on my screen these days, and uh, I love it. I love cool. being able to do these these shows with us. And of course, you lead this um, entire series, a very diverse series of practice sessions on our Integral Life Practice platform, um, which we will talk about today, um, as well as a very special Mother's Day practice, um, mm -hmm. which we're actually going to be doing on the day before Mother's Day on Saturday, um, Saturday morning, I believe. And um, I will let you and Lisa actually talk about that. Okay. Yeah, actually, I'm just, um, you know, I, was, I, I loved, I loved the idea that you came up with for that session. And I'd love to hear more about your inspiration for that. And also just a little bit about, you know, if you want to tell the audience about what you're going to be doing. Um, it's <laughs> not super juicy. So yeah. Yeah, it really does. Yeah. So so I think I was just a, a little bit surprised when um, integral life when when the two of you, or maybe it was just Lisa who mentioned that there was going to be a Mother's Day theme, um, which, which was like, oh, that's really lovely. So my session is, um, I don't have all of the details completely ironed out yet because it's, it's all sort of percolating in my mind and things kind of are being created up until I begin the call. <laughs> often and sometimes it is while I'm on the call <laughs> um, but um, what I realize always is that just the role of the mother is a it's a beautiful difficult complex compassionate you know it's a role that is all all of it it's like the the primary relationship in our lives mm -hmm. for most of us and obviously there are some of us who don't have that um, or it comes to us in different forms so I myself am not a uh, a woman who has given birth to a child so I'm not a sort of a biological mother um, I have a very wonderful relationship with my own mother it's really sweet. She and I have actually been together throughout this whole pandemic. Um, and sometimes it's, you know, I come from Sri Lanka, so I come from a, a different culture to some degree and from in some ways that Asian relationship to uh, in Asian family relationships are just really different to American family relationships. Um, in Sri Lanka, growing up in a Buddhist household, we were told from a very young age that your Buddha at home is your mother. So we kind of grow up with a sense of reverence wow. um, towards our mother, especially, but also our father. It's like our parents are a really big deal in, in, in how we are raised and 
for children growing up in Sri Lanka. So to me, the mother-daughter relationship has been really easy. It's been really just simple. You know, we, we enjoy just simple things and watching movies together. And it's never been like heavy laden with the kind of energy and the relationship dynamics that I've come to see here. For a lot of people, relationships between uh, uh, children and parents uh, can be pretty complex. Mm. So um, I want to explore in this practice, not just our relationship to our mother. I'm calling it the three, two, one of mother because there's a mother out there. However way we define a mother figure, a mother role somewhere out there for us. It could be an actual kind of traditional, yes, the mother who gave birth to, to, to oneself. Um, whoever that is, um, and then to have a dialogue with that, and then to turn it to the mother that is within us, whatever mm. we have given birth to. Um, because I really believe that all of us, even if we haven't like biologically given birth to a child, we mother other things. Mm-hmm. Uh, we mother pets so for some of us. We mother projects. We mother friendships, relationships. We mother communities. We mother the earth, the planet. Um, so in many ways, regardless of gender, regardless of whether you are a biological mother, um, I think we all have that great mother love, the feminine love, um, the relational love. It's all in us and it's complex. And so I'm gonna sort of really explore that. Beautiful. No, that's a beautiful summary, Namali. And I really particularly um, appreciate how you're focusing this practice. I mean, it seems like it's got many different applications. Mm-hmm. Um, you're going to be speaking to, you know, particular relationships that someone might have with their own mother or with their own children, for example. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're also, you know, sort of taking an archetypal approach to this, which I think is, is really interesting and in speaking to that, um, that sort of the symbolism of motherhood that okay. all of us, men and women carry around with us and sort of continue to co-create and redefine um, every time we enact it. Um, so I think that's gonna be really, really beautiful and really, really powerful for our audience. I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> that's always the hope, right? Uh-huh, yeah. Unless you just completely screw it up and then we all, <laughs> Yeah, yeah. need some Freudian therapy and sit in the couch and absolutely yes talk about our moms. Yeah, <laughs> I know. Right? Yeah, it is. It is a complex topic, so I I, I want to honor that, yeah. uh, and not not simplify it too much. And mm. um, I also want to. I don't know if any of you have heard of the Hoffman process. No, the, say more about it. The Hoffman process is a seven day retreat that happens out of California in um, White Sulphur Springs. Um, it's, it's close to Napa. And you, the, so the whole purpose of the Hoffman process is really in some ways to uh, 
to connect with your relationship with your parents. Mm. So it's really powerful. There's a lot of psychotherapy that happens in there, although it's not necessarily a psychotherapy retreat. Um, they're highly established. They have been doing this for 50 years or so, 40, 50 wow. years or so. So they're a very highly established organization. Very unfortunately, their entire retreat center was burnt down in the recent fires in California. Um, but I did that. And um, it's, it's like there were some people who showed up to that retreat who have never known a parent. Mm. So, you know, the work that we do around our primary relationship Mm -hmm. whether we even knew it or not, um, has played such a significant role in who we are today. Yeah. So, so I think there's beauty in exploring that. So I want to say thank you for inviting me to do that and for thinking of doing something for Mother's Day. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Beautiful. So, um, so Namali and I know each other through our Intral Coaching days. Uh, we went um, to Intral Coaching Canada together uh, and met there, which was really wonderful. And getting to um, be part of that group with you, Namali, was was super special. Um, and and uh, and you know, I, and and so as Intral Coaches, we we have a. a a particular way of approaching practice um, that we do with our clients um, that I think probably also largely informs how we approach practice um, for, for the ILP platform um, and for the participants, uh, you know, that are coming through integral life. Um, and so what's been, what's been interesting that I, I've been able to just kind of see over time as, as that platform has evolved and as practice leaders have been, you know, kind of jumping onto that platform and offering different things is that um, you and I tend to offer uh, like a lot of different things. Right. <laughs> Whereas some practice leaders, you know, they really drop deep into a single practice. And I'd love to hear, I'd love to hear sort of your approach to practice mm -hmm. um, as well as, um, you know, maybe you could highlight some of the practices that you are currently bringing to the, the platform. Um, and sort of the way that you approach putting those practices together, like why, why they're alive for you? Mm. Yeah, big question. Um, so first to start with, what's my approach to practice? I don't know that I necessarily have a thing called this is my approach. I suppose I'm drawn to certain practices uh, in a different way. Probably I'm always trying to make a bit of a heart connection. Mm. Um, I think my practice just comes to, it. to me, it's meaningful if it touches my heart somehow. Mm. So in that way, Perhaps the practices that I design, perhaps the practices that I introduce to my coaching clients or in our practice sessions are, are maybe softer in some ways or it's more heart-centered. Um, 
and I think I'm also, you know, I'm also a depth freak a little bit. So I do like to go into like deeper areas, but it's still sort of heart centered. And at the same time, I, like I'm an Enneagram four with a really strong Enneagram five wing. So I, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I just feel like I can do heart and head really easily some sometimes so I go to both spaces um, because some of my practices are also you know not so much about reflection but it's more about the sort of reflection um, from that heart-centered place but sometimes my practices are also like let's practice the heady space because I love that too so you know like recently I played a video of the video that made Jordan Peterson popular. Um, Jordan Peterson uh, was giving a speech at University of Toronto and the students sort of ambushed that meeting and then they got on a fight and well, not a fist fight, but a physical fight, but they were really got into a very heated argument. And that's what really uh, got Jordan P Peterson out uh, kind of known. Um, so I played a, like a seven minute video of that argument. And what I wanted everyone to do then was to send them into different groups. And I had them uh, come up with, well, I laid a bunch of questions and I had them sort of think of ways that this, that as intervalists, how do we honor both of those sides? Mm -hmm. How do we honor Jordan Peterson as well as the students who hate Jordan Peterson? So they kind of hate each other. Um, so I think these kinds of practices aren't terribly heartful, so to say, they're a little bit more headful. Um, but I think I, I take a lot of joy in sort of bringing that head heart approach to my practice. Um, and wherever I can, for sure, I will bring the physical piece as well. There's just no way that the body is, is not a part of that whole inquiry. So whether it's a simple uh, physical practice, just to even sort of stand up and notice the body um, or, you know, just connect with the body as we bow, um, just little thing, uh, simple things like that. We're limited as far as the physical physicality is concerned to really feel it as a body of the Sangha, we're a little limited in that space through Zoom. But um, so I think, you know, just simply from an Enneagram perspective, I, I could perhaps say that my practices come from the approach of trying to integrate or trying to include as much as is possible of the head center, the heart center and the gut center. So I love that. Uh, I love that because I really, I really resonate with that. I mean, you and I, it's one of the reasons why you and I have always gotten along as well as we do is that we, I think, approach this, we, we enact integral in very similar ways um, mm. because we share that aspect of a cosmic address together. I'm, I'm, I'm also a type four who leans pretty heavily on my five wing, which mm. means like you, I absolutely love the intellectual stuff. I love the cognitive. I mean, it's what brought me into the game in the first place. Mm -hmm. But I noticed that I don't feel satisfied unless I'm able to create some sort of connective tissue between all of that big, brilliant, you know, those ideas that are floating around up there 
and really kind of anchoring it in the heart, making it so that this is a, you know, driving an actual passion and is actually, you know, capable of transforming not just how we think about these things, but how we relate to them in the moment as reality arises um, for us each and every, every day. Um, and I think that that's a really, really powerful move. And, you know, to me, I, I sort of have this, this shorthand that I've been using when I think about, you know, where integral is today and where I think it's going to be going tomorrow. And I think that until now for decades, really integral really has been um, very cognitively driven, which makes a lot of sense, right? I mean, this is coming from Ken Wilber's cosmic address and the dude is just absolutely phenomenally brilliant and has gifted us with this, um, you know, intellectual crown jewel of, of his work. And now it's up to us in this sort of next wave to, um, like I said, create the connective tissue and really help people, you know, bring that energy out of sort of the imaginal and into their, their physical being, into their bodies and into their hearts and into their um, practices and their, their behaviors and just how we move through the world. And, you know, to me, it's, it's, it's sort of representative of, you know, it took a whole lot of Eros in a certain kind of way to bring us to where we are today. But I believe in my heart that the next phase of integral where this sort of spills out into the rest of the world is going to require a more agape like approach. Mm -hmm. It's going to require sort of an integral feminine I think that is really capable of pulling this down and making it immediately relevant and really emphasizing not just the true, right, but also the goodness that Integral makes possible that we're able to channel through our lives and into the world um, in order to, you know, leave this place a little bit brighter than we found it. Mm -hmm. um, and I love that impulse. And I've seen that, that, that exact impulse in you ever since I first met you, which was what, like 20 years ago. I know. Yeah. Incredible. Well, thank yeah. you. Yeah. 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 I think it's the work that we are all probably doing. And I think as far as the practices go, um, it's the first time that integral life has done anything like this, right? Like opening it up for practice together. So yeah, particularly this sort of ground up approach. I mean, we've done things like ILP kits and you put it in a box <laughs> and it's all kind of, you know, a little bit stodgy feeling. I mean, uh, um, and yeah. yeah, yeah, sort of the practice soapbox. This is a different <laughs> approach that we're doing, which is, you know, definitely bringing up a lot more. You know, I think we realize at the end of the day, look, our audience nine times out of 10 is so much smarter and more realized than we are. Let's let them drive this thing. Right. Cool. Yeah. So Lisa, I don't know if I completely answered. Um, you had several questions in your question, and I don't know if I got to all of it. I think I, yeah. Yeah, yeah no, it was, it was actually good. Um, and I, I want to pick up the thread that uh, that 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 Pro was just speaking to. You know, in in this particular um, podcast, we've been talking about the art of practice and the importance of practice. Um, and it was funny. I was actually on a call just the other day with Kevin. Uh, Snorf, who is another one of our practice leaders um, and also a, an integral coach who went through this at the same time that Namali and I did. 
Um, and, and, you know, what he was saying is that he thinks that sometimes it's difficult for people to really make the connection of like why practice is so important. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and in particular, why interval practice is so important because it just seems like it can be, you know, all of these different practices that you should be doing. And, um, and, and then, you know, and then Ken says it's a good idea to do interval practice, but like, what is the through line? What is the, you know, what, what is this actually allowing for? Um, what is the value of, of interval life practice? And I'm curious if you have, um, if that sparks anything for you, if you have anything to say about that. About like the, the importance of practice. Yeah. And the value specifically of like integral, you know, of doing an integral practice, mm-hmm. right. Of, of something that's more broad broad than a specific mm-hmm. practice. Over yeah. There. Yeah. Well, any practice at all, I think is important just for the mere fact that that's where we get to come out of the laboratory of the mind and just like roll up our sleeves and actually try things. And the more we do that, the more, um, and I think that in some ways we have to be real frank with ourselves when we practice. Um, so that we allow for our, um, you know, vulnerability to come out. It's when we practice, we see that as we get good at something, to get good at something, we have to practice. And while we are practicing, we see all the ways in which we stumble, we make mistakes, we see how much more we have to go. Um, or how much we can relax because also we realize we're doing fine. We're just okay. We're, we're doing great. So to do is to become more enlightened, I think. Mm. To me, um, it can be really difficult because I'm really happy sometimes to just stay in my heart and stay in my head and not really do. So it just and for some people it's really easy for them to do but then they really struggle with sort of connecting more Mm -hmm. to the heart or connecting more um sort of being able to think critically for example so it's somehow all of these different ways of waking up growing up showing up cleaning up um i don't know where I got this from, but I'm also adding resting up. Resting up, I like that, yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, it's, it's, I think the reason why we want to practice is, and hopefully practice with community, mm-hmm. is to actually allow for our humanity to come out through our practice, because otherwise we are armored and quite protected self-protected and we think we've got it all we or we think that we're good and when we actually go out there and we do it we learn more mm-hmm. about the ways in which we are already fine we can relax mm-hmm. uh, our anxiety has a chance to take a nap uh, and other ways of being more humble and and realizing wow i, I got a, i got some ways to go here mm-hmm. I like resting up a lot. I think it's funny that um, we can, uh, anyone we invite into this conversation can probably provide their own unique up to add to the list. You know, <laughs> Diane Hamilton's is uh, shutting up. 
<laughs> wake up, grow up, clean up, shut up. <laughs> Which I appreciate. Well, I've, I've got a question actually for both of you, since, since both of you have this coaching background. In your experience, what actually prevents people from practicing? And I ask because I think that most people here in Integral Land have a voice in the back of our heads that says, dude, you should really be practicing. Mm-hmm. And yet so many of us don't. It's really hard for whatever reason to overcome the resistance that is sort of preventing us from sitting on a cushion or lifting those weights or, you know, joining these, these uh, daily practice sessions that we're doing. What do you guys think is the actual resistance that is sort of keeping people from showing up when, you know, there's probably a voice somewhere in the background telling them that they should? Lisa, you want to go? Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. So, um, so yeah, I mean, naming it resistance really is the core thing, right? I think the resistance can show up in a variety of ways and it can show up as fear and it can show up as, um, uh, you know, uh, complacency. It can show up as, it can show up as anything. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think that, you know, I mean, in psychology, what we know is that it takes a lot for people to actually change anything. Um, And generally speaking, it can take a lot of pain for people to actually want to make any change. Um, it's comfortable being comfortable, <laughs> right? Like it's, 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 it's a lot easier to stay where you are. Um, when you, when you begin to get into places where you're unfamiliar, when you start to stretch beyond that comfort zone and you start to practice with things that, um, you have to employ beginner mind or that you have to be humble as Namali was talking about, or you have to, um, you have to drop in and be more present and more heart centered. All of those things bring up and vulnerable. All those things bring up different, different aspects of us that we may not come into contact with on a normal basis. So it becomes very uncomfortable, very fast, Mm. Um, or it can be, Um, we get to meet ourselves in different ways that um, through practice that we, we are not used to meeting ourselves that can feel daunting um and 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 so you know the practice itself the reason why i think it's so important is because the practice itself can create a support structure um can actually hold you as you start to foray into this unknown area what i particularly like about um about the way that we're doing it through integral life right now is that you get to do that in community now i know that for some people who uh, identify as extreme introverts um that may also sound daunting but the truth of it (laughs) is that there's something to be said about being in a group of people where we're you know we're all uncomfortable um where we're all trying something new together where we are all um bridging beyond our you know what is known for us that we're all venturing into that vulnerable and humble territory together um that i think um actually supports it can be also an added real support structure in um in calling you forward out of that comfort zone um so that's what popped up for me that's beautiful what do you think namali yeah, love it, um, Lisa. Just it was just a, uh, your um, reflections are beautiful and brilliant. Um, kind of sort of writing, piggybacking on what um, Lisa was just sort of saying. If I were to sort of take it even a, a layer deeper, I think to me, what practice sometimes shines a light on is death. Mm-hmm. you know death of 
um, depth of who we think we are. And I think we are predisposed, we come into this world holding on to life as we know it somehow and trying every, um, every way possible to deny death as though it's never really gonna happen. And I think the more we practice, and this is where I think any kind of practice is brilliant for any person at any stage of development, at any life condition that they're faced with. So, so having something that they routinely do is beautiful no matter what, who, but with an integral practice or with, with a little bit more of a deeper enlightenment that we can bring to our practice, I think what we more and more touch is, is that sort of, that this life is finite mm. to some degree, this life that we think we are living and this body that we think we have. Um, and I think there's a lot of fear that comes up when we really open ourselves up to practice that sense of the dissolving of the, the felt sense of reality and the lack of it in some ways. So I think that there is a beautiful dissolving of this relative life that us, all of us humans, pretty much, I am scared to lose in a way. It's almost like if I don't have this contracted ego life, ego self, then it's almost like, oh my God, I, I don't exist. So mm -hmm. anything that creates a liberation from that is actually scary. Mm. Good Lord, that's a gorgeous, that's a gorgeous response. Yeah, um, yeah no, I, I, I think you're really onto something there. And I think what that shows to me is that, you know, having a cognitive relationship with these integral ideas isn't enough to endure that. It's mm -hmm. not enough to endure that. It actually requires a certain amount of, well, humility to be willing to walk into that sort of vulnerability, right? Um, but there's also a, a sort of an ego maturity, it seems like. And mm -hmm. I think that, you know, one of, the, one of the things that I think we often see is that people's cognitive development often outpaces, sometimes far outpaces the development of sort of their other intelligences, including their ego development. So there, I think there's a lot of people who are really, really keyed into the integral ideas, but ironically are sort of using those ideas as, you know, Ken talks about immortality projects, where mm -hmm. we sort of find these substitute gratifications for this sense of, you know, finitude for the sense that like, I have a finite existence. I need to find something bigger than just this body mind. I can attach my identity to so that, you know, if I can't survive death, at least that can, mm -hmm. and, you know, it, oftentimes it feels like integral ideas, even though the ideas themselves are kind of telling you to check that out. Maybe, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. We're still sort of using these ideas as, as, as an edifice mm -hmm. um, in order to sort of try to serve, try to survive something in order to have, you know, sort of greater reach and a greater immortality in a certain kind of way. And, you know, in my own experiences with, um, with practices, one of the things that I've noticed is, you know, it goes back to how I originally framed the question. There's always that voice that says, you should be doing this, you should be doing that, all right? You should be 
you know, hopping on your elliptical machine every day. You should be meditating every day. There's always these should, 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 shoulds, but it feels like, you know, we, we often among our staff talk about the principles of like authentic marketing. And one of the angles I take on authentic marketing is there's a difference between a vitamin and a painkiller. And we all know that we should be taking our vitamins, but very few of us do, right? Because we don't actually feel the benefit of taking that vitamin until some pain is alleviated somewhere, right? I mean, there's a certain aspect of our nervous system that's just sort of, we, we do, we want, we want the quick fix. We just want the quick fix, or at least we want some sort of symptom relief. And I think that as we begin to relate to integral life practice, not just as like, take your vitamins, eat your broccoli, do your exercises, right? But it's actually like, if you do this, here is a pain that is actually going to loosen up. Here's a knot that's going to slowly uncoil for you. And that is going to reduce suffering in your life. But the problem is sometimes it takes, you know, you got to take your vitamins for a while before you start to feel the benefits of that. I mean, I remember years ago, when I was a young man doing P90X, <laughs> it sucked. It really sucked. And like, I had to drag myself to do it every single day. And it was just this, this voice telling that you should do this. This is what you should be doing. You've committed to this show up. It wasn't until I was like three months into the process and I really started feeling the benefits, which always comes later, right? That always comes later when you feel sort of the payoff of all this work that you've been doing. But once you get that feedback loop, it keeps you going, mm -hmm. right? And I think, I feel like we're at the phase in our integral life practice platform where a lot of people who've been participating with it regularly over the last year are feeling those painkillers. They're actually feeling in, a, in, a, in an immediate way how this is, again, reducing suffering for them in some aspect of their lives. And I think the more we can lead with that and help remind people like, you know, don't, don't do this because we're telling you to do this. Do this because it's going to make you feel better, right? You're going to be happy. You're going you're gonna to have more access to all of your capacities and capabilities and potentials. You're going to be able to see those opportunities. You're going to be able to work with Lisa in order to further develop your own anti-fragile mind so that you can continue to step into this even more deeply. I think if we can do a better job of getting that message out, um, you know, we'll really start to see this thing bear more fruit. Yeah. Yeah. What I also, what I love about this piece that you brought in, Amali, um, is that, is that ultimately it's this, this, you know, this underlying fear of death, right? This underlying fear of, of ego death and, and also physical death, um, that um, that really all of these practices um, on some level are allowing you to become more comfortable with. Um, and so it's like, as we practice in small ways, uh, taking those dissolving steps, um, in small ways, letting go of aspects um, or beliefs or patterns, in small ways of becoming more comfortable with crisis, um, and change. As we take these steps, as we practice these together, um, what's happening ultimately is we are becoming more comfortable with the inevitability of our own death. And, um, and I think that that's, you know, in terms of, so yes, that's the, that's the underlying resistance. It's also the, um, it's also the underlying brilliant outcome or the, you know, the, 
what's possible as a result of the practice the, of being in practice mm-hmm. is being able to make friends with um with that aspect of our existence mm. yeah 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 it's uh, i was just thinking uh, uh, as i was uh, hearing you both um you know why is practice so difficult was the question that Corey had posed and in some ways um practice is difficult because it is uh if you practice it is a reminder of our immortality um but also that is such a bad way to sell practice <laughs> like, practice 100% immortality guaranteed right right. like when you learn to die on the cushion then someday you don't have to die you know like yeah like when when Ken said you know if you die before you die then when you die you won't die you won't die (laughs) yeah not a good uh, tagline (laughs) yeah it's a tough one it's it's tough to fill a room like learn to die you know here this is practice do it every day because then you will learn to die i I gotta say no molly we have we have a course um which i encourage people to check out on uh integrallife.com it's called okay i'm dead now what and it's it's a course with andrew holacek where he's basically giving end of end of life lessons and wisdoms yeah um and it's a beautiful course but i actually took it as a challenge i said i want to write a piece of marketing copy that literally begins with the line you are going to die someday Mm -hmm. yeah (laughs) and that's what we did and it worked and people enjoyed it so i mean there are clearly some people out there who have this who have enough anti-fragility to simply accept their own mortality and their own limitations yeah. Right. And then, you know, sign up for this course so that they can learn how to be immortal. <laughs> right. Yeah. So I, I actually want to take a um, <clears throat> an Enneagram three spin now. Ooh, on, love it. On, um, and I would say that, in fact, even though I love hanging out in the death space because I have a strong four wing, um, what my Enneagram three wants to say about this is that is that really what we're talking about here is a sense of freedom yeah right we're talking about a sense of freedom because if we are no longer locked in our um in our our identities in such a strong way what we have access to is as Corey was talking about earlier it's a greater sense of freedom we have the ability to take advantage of more possibilities because we actually see them Um, we get to be more fluid and flexible in our identity we get to take on and 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 actually play with who we are becoming um, in life and and all of that to me really is enticing Mm. Um, you know if if this truly is if, if, if all of this ultimately ends up being an illusion, then that means it's a playground. <laughs> and so I think there's a strong invitation to play. And the thing that keeps us from playing is that we take ourselves so seriously um, that we are attached to our, our traumas and scars that we don't want to let them go, that we are attached to our identities in very specific ways. And because we're afraid to let those things go, we, we don't get to be what we can be in this, in this life. Um, so yeah, that's the, again, I said, I said the Enneagram three sort of take on this. <laughs> no, I, I love, and I love that. that... Why we need Enneagram threes. 
<laughs> seriously, I, I'm loving this polarity that we're seeing between the threes and the fours, where the threes yeah. are like these life affirming cheerleaders, and then yeah. us four are like the goth kids who are just all morbid <laughs> and like it's about death, man. I know, bring on the death. <laughs> so yeah, which I'm gonna say, which is why, interestingly, the three, four, or four, three is also known as like the most conflicted type. <laughs> because we've got both living inside of us right <laughs> yeah i want to die so i can live yeah 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 that's great yeah that's beautiful <laughs> um yeah and the other one is i want to live so that i can die <laughs> right yeah exactly <laughs> exactly yeah. that's funny well, i'm curious um well just to also just to mention the fact that you know speaking of sort of that ego um self um, practice, just like anything else we want to be really alert to and aware of is also uh, something that we can also use as a crutch sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, that, you know, for some people, it's amazing that they run, uh, you know, their six miles every day and they're super fit and all that. And then they could be in a really abusive marriage at home. Mm-hmm. Um, so sometimes even our practice is that which we attach to, to um, not really pay attention to the other parts of our lives that needs attention. It's a different practice. That's, that's a great point, Namali. And I think that um, we, we see the same thing with spirituality too. And I think what, yeah. what happens is it feels to me anyway, like there's sort of a, a step-by-step process where, you know, when we first start getting into this stuff, when we first start really recognizing our own, um, you know, the, the spiritual aspect of ourselves, we kind of hold it a little bit separate. Like, okay, that's over. We're going to, I'm all my spirituality is in this bucket over here. And then I've got the rest of my life sort of over here. And the hope is it's sort of like um, learning music. The hope is that, you know, you are specifically, you know, sectioning out some time to learn your scales and, you know, sort of, practice what you need to practice so that eventually you can just always be making music wherever you are, whatever you're doing. So, you know, you get, you practice as sort of its own within its own container so that eventually you're sort of always practicing, right? You're kind of always, you do enough shadow work, right? Until the point where you're always doing shadow work, where there's something sort of in the back of your mind that's constantly processing in this way because you're so practiced at it. And there's a certain point where, you know, it takes a lot of intentionality to get ourselves into that practice space, but there's a point, it feels like a point of maturation, maybe where you can kind of start letting go. And that doesn't mean you're not, you're going to stop sitting on your cushion. You're going to stop lifting the weights, but it just means like the drive, this sort of ascending, I need to do this in order to get myself from point A to point B that sort of dissolves a little bit. Right. And then you begin actually practicing, you know, you start doing practice, not as a way to get somewhere, but as a natural expression of where you already are. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I remember back in the day and I don't, I really mourn the loss of that uh, sitting practice that I used to have. I sit, I sit, but not nearly as much as I used to. Um, In Sri Lanka, before moving to the U.S., I sat the 6 a.m. to 7 a.m. sit at a nearby monastery every day, like a prayer for many mm-hmm. years. And then there are 6 p.m. to 7 p.m. Uh, sit as well. So I'd walk, uh, work during the middle of the day, then the morning and evening, 
my day was framed with these deep sits. And I remember, um, this is connected to what you said, when you have that kind of a disciplined practice, and the practice could be anything, I think, I remember just the way in which I would clean my office or write notes to people or um, do my groceries or do any of it. I remember just feeling so intentional in mm -hmm. all of it. So it, it's like the frame for the day created so much more meaning, groundedness, uh, beauty to just little things that I remember this, it was, there was a, there was a diligence and a carefulness with which everything was attended to. Mm. And that's the kind of beauty that comes from um, a beautiful practice. Um, and then, you know, when that practice is actually taking us into a deeper hole, um, hopefully we're mature enough to realize that, that we were doing our shadow work. That's right. Yeah. 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 It's like um, practice can actually become a, a coping mechanism. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Um, I, I, I like, uh, I, I love what you were just saying to Molly about, you know, sort of the way that the, the practice you were involved in were sort of bookends to your day and how that informed the rest of your day. Um, I've never been um, that much of a meditator. Uh, I've never had a practice uh, like that. Um, I do sit, but it's it's never been to that degree. Um, my approach has mostly been to actually view practice as um, uh, that I have a couple of practices that I am engaged in, and that as life is happening, um, that. That, and, and as life is unfolding in the way that life unfolds, that I'm engaged in those practices as a commitment um, to whatever I am facing in the current moment. Um, and so it's a, for me, it's been much more of a sort of dynamic lived experience in that way um, that has served me well. Mm. But, um, but I love, I, you know, I, I'm also, I've always been sort of a little bit envious of people who have like a really strong sitting practice, or I've just never developed. That's never been the way that I have, I have really worked with practice in my own life. Yeah. My life is too messy for that kind of structure. <laughs> I often say my practice is a practice of way, woo, way with an extra helping of woo. <laughs> well, that means I do nothing at all because I think I'm already there. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> My introduction to sitting practice was a really strange one, um, but uh, quite Zen actually. Um, so I was like literally just mourning the death of my father for like months and years even. And um, there was a monastery, like growing up in Sri Lanka, there are Buddhist monasteries everywhere. <laughs> it's mm -hmm. like a, maybe it's a tiny one or maybe it's a big one where all the politicians come and you know it's like there's like these really renowned monks and and then there's like the little ones. So there was like a medium sort of sized um, uh, 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 temple or a monastery really close to where I lived. I I was just, you know, just kind of even crying while I'm driving, thinking about my dad. And I pulled into the parking lot and I had never been into this monastery before. I pulled into the driveway uh, to the parking lot. I parked my car and I walk into the meditation uh, to the monastery. And as you enter, the first thing you see is a meditation hall. 
So, um, and there were a bunch of monks there. This monastery, for whatever reason, attracted a lot of Western monks. So a lot of white guys in, you know, orange saffron robes and shaven heads were there. And there was one older guy who was a monk. Um, and we just sort of started talking a little bit. And I said, oh, you know, maybe I'm curious about meditation. I've never done it before. He said, well, take a seat. I have the perfect book for you. Let me just go up to my room and I'll, be, I'll bring it back. So I sat on that cushion and I waited for literally two hours. He never came back. <laughs> and I stood I up. Lesson. <laughs> yeah. And I stood holy shit, I just had my first sitting lesson. That is some <laughs> skillful means right yeah. there. Man. <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to bait you with your cognitive mind. Oh my gosh. That's great. Yeah, that was amazing. I mean, I don't know really what that may, maybe that old monk just actually truly forgot or whether <laughs> he actually did some kind of crazy wisdom things. Like I'm just going to watch her and see what she's going to do. And whether he was even watching me from afar, who knows, but, but, uh, Yes. Yeah. And then I got deeply into it after that, like multiple 10 day retreats, uh, 40 day silent, solitary retreat, uh, not seeing anybody, not talking to anybody. Just, yeah. So. (laughs) And this is one of the reasons why I really appreciate um, Roger Walsh's emphasis these days on karma yoga. Because I think that, you know, particularly in the way he presents it, this is how we sort of reconcile the, the sort of the duality of having a spiritual practice over here versus the rest of my life over here. This is actually how you take that spiritual practice, whatever, you know, whatever it might be, and actually sort of bring it in and fuse it into your actions in the world and your work in the world in a very, very deliberate, conscious and conscientious way. Um, to me, it feels like, uh, is, is, you know, he, I think Roger is emphasizing this at just the right time in terms of where the integral project is today. Um, again, it's, it's sort of a, a way for us to pull all of these practices together. I mean, Lisa, you and I have talked about several times sort of, um, you know, how special that showing up category is. It's like, we do all this practice for, waking up, growing up and cleaning up, all of which is sort of, you know, contained to our own interior psyche. It's very individual, personal based work. But then you reach a point where this begins spilling out. This begins to then affect like, oh, now I'm, you know, I I didn't even realize it, but now I'm engaged in a parenting practice and I'm engaged in a a workplace practice. And now it's, it's just, you know, my practice is everywhere. I'm taking this practice. I'm taking my cushion with me wherever I go. And now this is beginning to really saturate into my work. And I'm feeling a little bit less of that, that division that I previously felt between my spiritual life and my, I guess, everyday life. Um, and I want to point people to uh, Roger Walsh's practice. We have a couple different pieces by him that'll help illuminate this a little bit more. Uh, first on integrallife.com on the practice page. If you scroll down, you'll find our library of self-directed practices. He has one there called, I think it's called Life as Practice which is a beautiful introduction to karma yoga. Uh, He also just recently did a dialogue with Ken Wilber where they really, really unpack this. Um, And I encourage you guys all to check that out because it's it's really, um, again, I think it's right on schedule. And I think it it slips into seamlessly what we're doing here on the Integral Life Practice platform and sort of, you know, helps people take that next step in terms of pulling this all together 
um, into their own lives and their own work in the world. Nice. Yeah, I'll, I actually want to check that out too. I love Roger's work. Um, yeah, me too. Yeah. I, I actually, uh, I ground the, um, so I do an a ethical power uh, session on the, you know, monthly, and we always ground in um, Roger's definition of what, 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 the, what ethics are, mm. you know, what living an ethical life is. Um, That's yeah. beautiful. Well, maybe for the last part, ladies, you know, we, we've done a lot of talk about practice as homework, as broccoli, as, uh, <laughs> as uh, strengthening our relationship with our own existential lines of development and getting all morbid with death stuff and all that. <laughs> I want to talk about some of the fun parts of practice because that's one of the common refrains with these practice sessions that people are just legitimately having a freaking blast. Mm. Um, you know, no Molly, I want you to tell the story. <laughs> one of the coolest thing about the practice sessions that we do is the people who show up. And yeah. one of the things that makes me really, really happy is one of the person, one of the people who I love so much, who continues to show up into these practice sessions is Suzanne Cook Greuter. And Amali, you have an awesome Suzanne Cook Greuter story I, I, I want you to share with the rest of us. Yes, absolutely. Um, it, it's, a, it's a quick story, but I think she showed up. I do a session called Integral Bypassing, um, or I did my first session, I think last month or something. Um, um, she showed up to that session. She said she uh, she had a clown class just before the integral bypassing session. <laughs> so she showed up in her clown costume. <laughs> so she had a like a super cool clown hat, which had like these little bells hanging on it. <laughs> and she had the big red uh, cheeks here. And it was really sweet because she was also like during the session, throughout the session, you know, occasionally when she was sharing something, she'd be saying these really heartfelt, sweet, serious things about integral bypassing or practice. And, you know, she had these jingle bells on her hat, <laughs> like red cheeks. And I can't actually remember if she had the nose as well. I'm drawing a bit of a blank on that, but <laughs> yeah, just the most adorable thing. But but yes, absolutely. I think the funnest part about practice, I actually struggle to practice on my own. Mm. As much as an introvert as I am and an individualist as I am, when it comes to practice, I actually really struggle to find the motivation to do it alone. Same. Um, so whew, it, that's hard. Um, so coming together with other people, if there is the sangha or the community that is a part of our practice, honestly, there is possibly nothing more fun than that. Mm. Simple, joyful, fun of people coming together and, and working on our shit together. Totally. totally. <laughs> yeah. Well, let me just say greatness together. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, let me just say Suzanne Kukreuter showing up to an integral bypassing that particular, that particular practice dressed up as a court jester is like some (laughs) shamanic level shit right there. Yes. And I love that after all these years, our integral elders are still surprising us with clown school and wigs. (laughs) Yes. I think it's great. Right. I know. Yeah. It's so awesome. Yes. Not take our lives so seriously. 
So Lisa, what have your been experiences with just like the real fun, you know, because again, it's, it's, I think so many people relate to practice as this like completely ascending thing. Like, again, we're all trying to get from point A to point B and this is sort of, you know, the, the quickest route to get there. Um, but th there's, there's something about this descending energy of people being together, being joyous, being connected, being free, as you say. Um, free to be themselves with other people who are like-minded and like-hearted. Well, I actually love that you were just bringing in authenticity because I think that that's the, you know, that's the piece, right? Like being able to just be who you are in these sessions, it's a real gift. Mm. Um, and I, I don't know that it's, it's raucousness necessarily, but what I would say that, uh, I get to see a lot in, in a lot of the sessions that I lead is people learning to just take themselves less seriously and, mm. and starting to poke fun at, you know, the places where they still need to do some work or to heal, um, that there's a, there's a, a lightness that actually that you, you begin to have permission to have around practice. And yeah, I mean, I, I think that practice can become such a serious affair, right? <laughs> and there's certain, there's certain, um, there's certain kinds of practices that really lend themselves to that. Mm -hmm. But most of the practices that I really like to do um, are, are in inquiry. And when we start to inquire into, um, into aspects of ourselves, uh, and if we can bring that lightness in, um, there, things begin to open up in some really surprising and sweet ways mm. and being able to then turn around and share that with, uh, either a small group or in the, you know, in the larger room with other people who are having the same experience. I don't know. It just lends to a lot of laughter and, um, and, uh, a lot of smiles. Um, we just had our, uh, our, uh, creating conscious, um, friendships, women's circle on Sunday. And it was so funny because I, I always break them into groups of four um, and they do something. And when they come back, um, the, 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 expression, the expression on these ladies' faces is always really beautiful um, mm -hmm. because they all just look so satisfied um, where the, because they just had an opportunity to drop into deeper intimacy and deeper connection, to laugh, to share, um, and to create that some bonds that are really magical and special um, and that have bridged the gap for a lot of people during this whole period of time when we've been so disconnected from others. So I think that that becomes available in these rooms in special ways that are kind of unnameable. You know, it's like there's just an essence to being in community in this way that has allowed for some things that are really beautiful for people. Mm. No, yeah, and if I, if I can also add something that, you know, there's a part of me that right now, you know, there's all these amazing online programs that we can join and sign up for. There's an endless amount of it. But now I notice how I'm sort of holding back a little bit from like signing up for this and that, because I feel like I'm going to save my money for what whenever the next like human meat space thing is going to happen and it's going to be a blast. And so I'm doing that. I, I am like missing the meat space, just like the rest of the world is probably missing it as well. But this new um, sort of amazing thing that has happened with a lot of us coming together through Zoom is there is also a beauty to us being able to gather as a community 
without what gets in the way when we do come together as in meat space, as mm. you do, like, you know, what we look like or what we do. Like, you know, I love that at the Hoffman process that I spoke to you about a little while ago, where we work with our parents. Um, um, in that, in that uh, workshop, it's a seven day workshop. You're with the same people for seven days. One thing that they're extremely strict about right from the start of the session is uh, from the retreat is nobody's allowed to share with anyone what they do for work. Hmm. You, you do not get to share what you do for work. I'd go crazy. <laughs> it's amazing what liberation people feel yeah. from not knowing what people are doing. Yeah. Um, they let you reveal that on the night before the final morning. That's the only time that people get to say what they do. Interesting. Uh, because then we're looking at these incredible people that we have just all been sort of one with. And now we see, oh, that's a Google engineer. Wow, that's a NASA engineer. I had no idea. Oh, and, and she's a thrift shop worker. Um, and you, at that, that's the first time that I really realized, especially in sort of in the US, it's an American thing, I think, what we do for, life, for, for a living is often what we are heavily defined with as mm -hmm. to who we are. Yep. It's a re I think that's a really scary place. Yep. Um, I think that's a pain that um, everyone feels and yeah. uh, men in particular feel very um, poignantly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. It's everybody. And or you could also say Enneagram fours and Enneagram threes. We do mm -hmm. a lot of um, comparing, comparing often. Mm -hmm. So when we come together in these practice sessions and we only really know each other mostly through this little box, um, there's actually a disarmed uh, disarming you don't like we don't really care about what you look like or you know what you do or we don't we don't do too much of that in yeah. the sessions there's no space for that so he, people come as people and human and a little community of wonderful um practitioners yep. practitioners is the vocation right. i i am a practitioner when i come here and that's true for everyone. And there's actually a, a real true gift that has happened through, through that of people being able to really explore without all the other added layers of complexity that can happen when we come together as humans in meat space. That's beautifully said. It's a beautiful point. And I think it gets back to, you know, Lisa, something you said that I think is really, really important is that at the end of the day, so much of this comes down to um, finding ways for us to get over ourselves. And I think that this is actually sort of um, a panacea for what I see anyways, one of the primary integral level shadows that's out there. And I think that there's a natural sort of um, teal altitude arrogance that begins to, to constellate around all of that. And I think that these practices this way of inviting people to practice helps them get over that piece of themselves, which probably answers the question I, I asked earlier, why is it so hard for people to begin practicing? Because you have to be willing to get over yourself in the first place. And honestly, not most of us aren't. Most of us just kind of aren't. 
Um, you know, I've been in stages in my life where it's like, no, my, my work right now can't be getting over my, like, I need to be somebody before I can be a nobody. I need to build myself up first before I can get over myself. But I think the point we're trying to make is you can actually kind of do both simultaneously, right? Polarities you can, you, you yeah. can show up to these sessions, like fully committed, fully determined, fully present while wearing your clown makeup. Mm -hmm. And we're sort of inviting everyone to show up to these practices wearing your clown makeup. <laughs> I mean, maybe not literally, literally, if you want to. Yes, because that's <laughs> right? what Suzanne Cook-Reuter was doing in her clown class. <laughs> exactly. And it's a, it's a way of reminding ourselves, like, you know, I'm, I'm going to put on this invisible nose right now, because this is actually an invitation to get over myself so that I can open myself up to even more of myself and more of each other. Um, which, which feels like a, a very appropriate and important lesson, again, for particularly for where the Integral Project is today and where I think we need to continue moving uh, in the years to come. Yeah, and you know, I, I love that you brought this up, but I, what, what's sparking for me right now is, you know, our egos want to, um, to create identity around anything we can grab onto. <laughs> like that is just, that's what the ego does. Yep. And, and the whole idea of being an integralist, um, of being able to see the world and see things in this particular way, that's an identity. <laughs> like all of these things are identities. And so the, you know, the work I think ultimately is this thing called how can we um, loosen the grip of of our ego on these various identities, even the identities that we are associating with being second tier. Um, how can we start to loosen the grip of those identities so that actually more becomes possible for us? Um, yeah. Yep. You can see the contrast right here, Lisa. Look at look at my back background versus your back. Look how much I want everyone to know about me. <laughs> Versus your background and what you want people to know about you. <laughs> we can see our various levels of ego development at play here. <laughs> and I think you might be winning the race. I don't know. <laughs> well, you could also look at it like, look how much I don't want people to know about me. <laughs> There's that too. Okay, I like that one better. <laughs> Uh, here's the comparison thing we'll have to have a we'll have to start a, a practice around um loosening the hold of comparison <laughs> just for Corey to come to right <laughs> just, for, just for practice I, I need a lot of uh practices just for Corey. if you could lisa if one of these <laughs> months you can string together practice. practices for Corey. i would really appreciate that <laughs> ladies is there anything else that we want to uh sort of throw into the pot for this episode other than reminding people about Nomali's Mother's Day practice, which is coming up on May 8th, 10 o'clock a.m. Pacific time. Okay. Yep. It's a two-hour session. It's a two-hour session. So this is going to be a nice, deep drop-in and a full-body practice. I'm super excited you're doing this, Nomali. Um, yeah, it just, I, I'm really excited that this, that this practice is being offered to our community. Excellent. Thanks for giving me yeah. the opportunity. Yeah. And thanks for having me today, guys. Absolutely. And Absolutely. lady. Yes. <laughs> we, we, 
I just, I always remember, you have to be more politically correct. <laughs> just, just use yeah. y'all. You can just get away with anything saying y'all. Y'all. Thank y'all. No, I want to particularly thank the both of you um, for making our practice platform as vibrant and as um, diverse as it really is. I mean, the amount of practices, you know, Lisa, you started the show by saying we've lot, we have a lot of practice leaders and they're all absolutely amazing and they do what they do so well and they get so deep in these sessions, uh, particularly because a lot of them are leading sessions that repeat every month. So you can sort of build on a theme. And I see the two of you as, as doing something a little bit different. You're doing that as well, right? You have your sessions that you repeat every month, but you're also constantly throwing novelty onto the platform. You're constantly coming up with new ways to practice, new ways of relating to practice, new sort of facets of ourselves, our identity, our relationships, our, you know, our, our being in the world that you are uncovering with all of this just massive diversity of practices that you're bringing to us. And um, I feel deeply grateful for that. I know our audience feels deeply grateful for that. And I hope you guys continue sort of this, uh, this innovation that I've been seeing from the two of you uh, mm. in the months to come, because it's been, it's been really, really cool to see. Mm, well, thank you. Yeah. Thank you. All right, ladies. Well, thank you so much for your time. Lisa, we've just got another episode in the can. Hey. Yeah. <laughs> And we'll be back again next month. Uh, what are we doing? Third Tuesday of the month. Yeah. Uh, we'll be back about, uh, about four weeks from now. And I hope you guys can catch us then. In the meantime, go check out Namali's Mother's Day practice, as well as all the other riches that we have in the platform that are waiting for you. All right. All right. Thank Later. you. I love you all. Bye-bye. Bye now.